Today's reading is from chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah submitted or obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. This is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Thank you, Steve. Um, appreciate uh, being able to change up at the last minute. Um, if you were expecting uh, Tim this morning, he's feeling poorly, so he asked me to uh, step in. Uh, it was kind of a last-minute thing, so we decided that I would just use my Sunday school lesson that I had planned for this morning uh, to be our, uh, our time in the Word um, during worship. So uh, this is kind of give you that, you know, free streaming service first episode. And you might like what we're doing in Sunday school and join us next week. So there's that. Let's open with a word of prayer and, uh, and then let's look at the word. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the opportunity to be in your word, to look at your wisdom that you have given us. Uh, give us a heart uh, of, um, of wisdom and understanding uh, about this passage and that uh, we can walk closer to you as a result of um, knowing your word better. I'd like to pray for uh, those of us, those who are uh, in our church who are not feeling well, uh, Ron, um, uh, Joanne's um, uh, daughter, Cindy, um, up north who's not feeling well, and for Ron LaFoon, uh, for Kevin, uh, for uh, Steve, uh, who just read for us, but uh, is uh, tested positive, that uh, your healing hand would be on them and you would be glorified in uh, their recovery. Uh, be with us now in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we covered verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. Uh, this is our study in 1 Peter we've been doing. Uh, we covered verses 1 and 2 last week, but I'll do a review of that part this morning just for the context. Uh, without verses 1 and 2, uh, the context of 3 through 7 is, is kind of weird. So um, uh, even then, we're coming in in the middle of a passage. Peter's continuing in his instruction to believers on how to relate to others in this world. Uh, we need to remember Peter didn't write this in chapters and verses. He wrote a letter. And the first seven verses of chapter 3 are a continuation of his teaching started in chapter 2, verse 13. Um, and uh, 
and even that follows his teaching about becoming a holy people who are set apart. You can go back and look at that, but it's about relating to uh, others, to the government, and uh, to uh, to servants um, and their and masters. We come to this passage. We need to look at wives be subject to your own husbands carefully. We need to know what's there and what is not there. This is one of those verses that people can go off the rails in either direction on. And uh, we need to look at what is here and know what God's word says uh, and, and understand the, uh, the teaching that's here. So first, uh, he says a wife should be subject. That means under order, submit to, yielding to her own husband. Uh, I'm no Greek scholar. You all know that very well. But I think the statement should end with a period. Now, there's no punctuation in Greek. I know that. But this statement, why is he subject to your own husbands, stands on its own. There's four passages in the New Testament that expressly give to wives the responsibility to submit to their husbands. Uh, Ephesians 5.22, Colossians 3.18, Timothy or Titus 2.5, and here in 1 Peter. So wives be subject to your husbands is a complete command. So second, a wife is to be submissive to her own husband. Um, I think we go off the rails when we start to make this a, a general statement. Wives are not submissive to all men in general or all men of the church. We're called to an order that God has placed on creation. And while women are not to teach or have authority over men in the church, that's different than women being subject to all men. A woman has intellect and gifting from the Holy Spirit. In a real sense, men subjugating women in the church in an improper way is disrespecting the Holy Spirit that dwells within that woman. So we ask the question, how should we treat a man or woman in our church? And I think Philippians 2 gives us an answer, gives us a guide. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So when we start thinking about putting others' interests first, that becomes a practical way of thinking of others as more significant than ourselves. And this works as a wives be subject to husbands, but also further on in verse 7, we talk about husbands honoring their wives and how we relate to each other in the church. Uh, regardless of uh, gender. Uh, we can do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, no matter who that person is. So that's just the very first part of uh, verse one. And next we come to a section that reveals one of the reasons for a wife's subjection or submission to her husband. Uh, starting in the middle of verse 1, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Oh, so wives do this. They're subject to their husbands. 
so their husbands can be one, can be saved by the conduct. It's easy to change a command into an if-then statement. If a husband's not a believer, then this is what we do to win him over. We have to understand this is not a conditional command. It's a command for living an obedient life, irregardless of the husband's spiritual state. Submission in the home follows the same principles of submission as we saw towards government or our employers that we learned about in chapter two. And you can go back and look at that. Um, and it's a submission not only of the actions, but also of the heart. Wives may want to shape their husbands, either guiding them to Jesus with their actions or trying to shape them by their words. Peter reminds them that God's plan is for is that wives impact their husbands, not through lectures, but through godly submission and a fear of God. Is telling someone to change their behavior the best way to affect a change in them? Telling somebody to change. Saying calm down doesn't make people calm down, particularly if you're panicking when you do it. Isn't it better to demonstrate that behavior in your own life? And not that the wife wants her husband to learn submission, but she wishes for him to see what a love for God and a changed heart can look like in a life. We've, uh, during this pandemic, we've seen almost every week a mayor or a governor telling us, even threatening us to stay home because of the pandemic. And without fail, they are caught doing the very things they threaten you with arrest for. Their words are empty when their example is contrary to their message. Imagine an unbelieving husband witnessing a Christian wife living her life contrary to the words she says her husband should follow. Your words have to match your actions. And the last little uh, part of uh, verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. A wife who doesn't show love and respect to her husband can't find her words attractive when she says he needs to repent. Being subject to her husband, a wife is showing her submission to God. When she refuses or thinks her way is best, who is she rebelling against? Who is she ultimately not being subject to? When God calls us to be subject to kings and governors, or masters, or husbands, he is commanding us to be subject to him. And we tend to push that part aside and, and focus on the, the interpersonal relationship between a husband and a wife, or a master and a servant. Uh, but this is commanding us to be subject to God, to submit to him, because he's the one giving us his commandment. So we come to the new part. Uh, that was the... Um, Verses one and two were last week. Uh, I stripped out most of the really good jokes so we could, you know, catch up, but uh, give you some context. So verse three, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So we come to a passage about woman's adornment. So does God judge you by what you wear or how you look? Does God 
care how rich you are? Is he impressed by kings? Is he impressed by rich men? Does he think your new car is cool? Is he impressed by a woman's jewelry? Her fancy hairdo or her, her expensive dress? What we're talking about is the true beauty of a godly woman. Peter did not forbid all adornment. For the godly woman, outward adornment should not be the top priority in her life. Her emphasis should be on inward adornment. So if we transliterate it, so we're just going to make this sound very awkward, just taking the Greek words and trying to translate them as closely as possible to an English word without playing with it, and it is into uh, older English, uh, that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel adorning. So Peter does not forbid a woman fixing her hair or wearing jewelry any more than he's forbidding her to wear clothes because they're all in the same context that um, uh, the jewelry, the hair, or, or the clothing. So we say you can't judge a book by its cover. And I think that's a good uh, analogy or a good uh, saying here. So the outward appearance of a person is not a good indicator of the hidden person, of the heart. And in literature, movies, television, uh, that's always been a, a ploy, a, a literary ploy that the good looking guy is the bad guy. The beautiful woman is, is the deceitful one. So uh, we need to look at the, the hidden person, the heart of the person, and looking at their outward appearance does not give us necessarily a good indicator of that. Um, so I've heard different commentaries and people talk about this, uh, about the context of the time that Peter was writing. But Peter's counsel here was not a radical thought in his day. We think of the Roman Empire and, and being, you know, all um, materialistic and hedonistic. But the ESV study Bible is four secular works of Peter's day that includes similar advice to woman, although without the godly counsel. Uh, I didn't list them for you because that's a boring list. But uh, the secular works of the day talked about a woman being uh, inwardly beautiful as a greater trait than her hair, her clothing, her jewelry, and things like that. Uh, Peter, uh, the Apostle Paul also includes the same advice when he writes to Timothy in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So, Excuse me. Beauty is not something you have. It's something you are. What do you depend on to make yourself beautiful? The things you buy or your heart for God? Peter's point is not that any of these are forbidden, 
but they should not be a woman's adornment, not how she sees herself as beautiful. There are some, both men and women, who define their beauty as the outward appearance. Our society equates beauty with youth or youthful attitudes and looks. And this is just marketing. Young people are willing to spend more on fashion than older people do, so they, they um, pursue that demographic. But this idea of beauty crumbles when those people age and are no longer viewed as the ideal age for beauty. Then they begin to chase youth and are ultimately frustrated by failing to hold on to it. And, and that, that includes a pursuit of material wealth. There's this wrong thinking that the things around me make me beautiful. And so now is when I do the public service announcement. Guys, pay attention. I'm not just talking to the ladies. This is for you too. We pursue, we chase youth and assume that that makes us beautiful or wonderful or awesome or cool. And when that's out of our grasp, when that goes away, people can get frustrated and people can uh, uh, pursue that to an extreme and it's not healthy. Proverbs 31:17 says she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. And in verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. It's perfect. <laughs> she doesn't care what's coming, including age. So verse four, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The inner beauty of a godly woman is imperishable. Means it does not decay or it does not get worse with age. Instead, imperishable beauty only gets better with age because there's experience, there's maturity, there's a growing knowledge and confidence that goes with that. And it's of much greater value than the beauty that comes from the hair or the jewelry or the clothing. Peter describes the character of true beauty, a gentle and quiet spirit. These character traits are not promoted for women by our culture, yet they are very precious in the sight of God. I found it interesting that in a section on women's behavior concerning her husband and his salvation, we have these two verses that talk about what God finds precious. What he wants to see in any person. And without verses three and four, this would be a fisherman's idea of a good woman. But what God finds precious is what has true value. And I think it's just wonderful that God sticks in there. He says, this is my command. This is a reason for that command. And by the way, this is what I think is wonderful and precious. Proverbs 31.30, charm is de deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. We come to verse 5 in 1 Peter, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. 
As mentioned earlier, this is not a new teaching. Even the world recognizes the beauty of a woman who loves the Lord. In verses 5 and 6, Peter reminds us or teaches us that this is a standard of beauty for, quote, holy women who hoped in God. Or as the King James says, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God. What he's talking about is the women of the Old Testament. So hoped in God. They demonstrate their faith in God by submitting to their husbands. By submitting to their husbands. A woman can trust her own ability to influence and control her husband, or she can trust God and be submissive to both God and her husband. A woman can trust her outward beauty and adornment as a way to influence her husband, or she can trust God and cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. And all of this comes back to a trust in God. In verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, for if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So two things demonstrated Sarah's submission to Abraham. First, she obeyed Abraham even when it was difficult, and even when he was wrong. In Genesis 12, 10 through 20, Abram told his wife Sarah, to lie about their relationship and say she was his sister. And she, and she followed that. Second, she honored Abraham by calling him Lord. It's possible to obey someone without showing them the honor that's part of submission. True submission knows the place of both obedience and honor. And a wife's Submission to her husband is reflected in her words and actions. Deference to his leadership is an acknowledgement of his responsibility, which is what we're going to talk about next. And the words do good remind us that true submission is not a sulking surrender to authority or a false submission. Submission is not lying in wait for your chance to pounce. It's not letting him try it his way first, hoping for him to fail. It is an active embrace of God's will, demonstrating trust in him, trust in God. And that is, is the true submission. Uh, it says, do not fear anything that is frightening, continuing in, in 1 Peter. Isaiah 26.4 says, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. So some examples, Rahab, Deborah, Esther, Ruth, even Mary all trusted God. And faithful submission to God does good and leaves the result to God, not man. Each of these women trusted God in frightening times. In Psalm 9, 9 and 10, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. We, we need to come to this realization and this maturity of understanding that sometimes men are jerks. And 
Sometimes that's your husband. Sometimes it's just the world. Sometimes it's just people. But faithful submission to God leaves the result to God. And we trust God, not man. And that's what this example of these women in Old Testament times shows us. So put our trust in the Lord. Because he's not forsaken those who seek after him. So we come to verse 7. So guys, you can all wake up from uh, poking your wife and saying, do this, do this. Because now it's your turn. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So verse 7 is addressed to the husbands. And it starts the same as verse 1. Likewise. And we should ask, how is this likewise? Verse 1 is saying, look back at chapter 2, starting in verse 13, where we talk about, you know, being in submission to government and being in submission to masters and wives likewise be submissive to your husbands. And then we come to verse 7, likewise. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. This is also a command. I've, I've heard sermons. Why do we assume this? there's a command for wives, but a suggestion for husbands? It, that's not realistic. We're still talking about relationships. We're still talking about how we relate to others to reflect how we relate to God. So this doesn't change the fact that this is a command to the husband. A godly husband lives with his wife. He doesn't merely share a house, but he truly lives with her. He recognizes Paul's teaching on marriage in Ephesians 5, that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, and that's um, 528 in Ephesians. So a godly husband understands the essential unity or the oneness God has established between husband and wife. Next it says, in an understanding way, a godly husband undertakes the important job of understanding her wife, understanding his wife. By knowing her well, he's able to demonstrate his love for her in ways that actually matter. It's almost, um, um, I don't know, guys giving their wives a gift at Christmas or something that is totally clueless, showing that they have no idea what, uh, what their wife wants or desires. Um, a friend of mine gave his wife a vacuum cleaner on her birthday and was surprised that she was not excited because she needed a new vacuum cleaner. Uh, <laughs> so a husband's supposed to take his understanding and apply it in daily life with his wife. And this is where many men have trouble following through. 
they may have understanding about their wives, but they don't use it as they live with them. And that's not loving your wife as yourself. If you understand your wife, but you ignore that information when you live with your wife, you're thinking about yourself more than you are about your wife. And a godly husband knows how to honor his wife in a real and meaningful way. Though she submits to him, he honors her intellect and beauty. Go back and look at verses three and four. If God considers, <coughs> excuse me, that inward beauty of a woman as, as beautiful and as precious, the husband should as well. He regards her as a person that he has unity with. It's not, this is more than just a partnership. It's not a business arrangement. So where Paul's radical teaching is, is actually not in his instruction to wives, but his radical teaching is that the husband has God-ordained duties and obligations towards his wife. He must honor her and work to understand or know her. That was radical teaching in the first century. As the weaker vessel, that's the last little part of this, in this context, weaker vessel means the woman's relative physical weakness in comparison to men. We see women as weaker, softer, um, men aren't necessarily spiritually stronger than women, and, and it's wrong to assume that, but they're generally stronger physically. Um, and, and we don't want to wring too much out of the weaker vessel um, line, but a godly husband knows his wife's strengths and weaknesses. He doesn't expect more from her than what is loving and appropriate and kind. And, and that goes back to, to loving her as you love yourself. Know, know what her strengths are. Know what her weaknesses are. Don't berate her for her weaknesses. Uh, but uh, don't marginalize and, and ignore her strengths and rely on those strengths that she has. Um, I would come to heirs with you of the grace of life. And Wayne Grudem says, this reminds husbands that even though they have been given greater authority within marriage, their wives are still equal to them in spiritual privilege and eternal importance. They are joint heirs. <clears throat> we, we, we build up this idea that uh, somehow women are second-class Christians, and it's absolutely not true. They are equal in spiritual privilege. I love that line. They are, men and women both have this wonderful offer of Jesus Christ as their Savior and eternal life with Christ. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I think we can take that last part and apply it here. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's that unity. When we talk about a unity in a marriage, the, the bonding agent is Jesus Christ. This is more than just trying to get along. You are unified spiritually in Jesus Christ. 
Come to the last part that your prayers may not be hindered. And the failure to live as a godly husband has spiritual consequences. It can and it will hinder prayer. And if you are the you are the husband of a wife, this should concern you greatly. Um, Spurgeon said essentially to that line that uh, this should really bother you, that, uh, that this hinders your prayer. And this has a couple of levels. So first, if you aren't following God's commands here, you probably aren't following his commands in other areas of your life. Your prayers are likely weak or non-existent. And only saying grace at dinner does not count as a prayer life. Just saying that part. <laughs> we, if you're not following this command, you're not following God's uh, commands for your life in other areas. And that's going to hinder your, your prayer. That's going to be the evidence that you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. He's not your Lord. And second, if you don't love, honor, and understand your wife, how can you pray for her? So often we pray for people we don't know, and that is good and fine and right. That we hear about somebody on the other side of the planet who is suffering, and we are made aware of that, and we pray for them. Don't you think that the prayer for your wife should be deeper, more intimate, more meaningful, um, and how can you do that if you don't love her, if you don't honor her, and you don't understand her? If you're not unified with her, how do you pray for her? And that's how your prayers are going to be hindered. And I think a point that seems to be missed in this verse is the command to understand and honor your wife includes an unbelieving wife. Just as a command for a wife to submit to her unsaved husband to win him with her actions instead of her words, the same applies here. And I think when we see the heirs with you line, we assume that the wife is saved. Maybe not yet. And maybe this is how by honoring her and understanding her and loving her in the way that Christ has called you to. Living a married life that follows God's will and commands lovingly brings great glory to God. It's a life lived serving God and the testimony that shows to the unsaved world, even the unsaved world in your own home, the love of God. Um, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this uh, instruction that you've given to us in your word. Um, that uh, for those who may have an unsafe spouse, that they can apply this today, that they can spend time in prayer for their spouses. And for those of us who are blessed with uh, a uh, spouse that we truly are currently joint heirs in Christ together, that uh, this would be an opportunity for deepening and enriching both that relationship and both of our relationships with you.
in a way that our lives demonstrated glorify you. Thank you for this morning and this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.